not live where where unli- it's, a, it's an unlisted video is what we've got here so okay. I'll, I'll i'll start with your bio mike watson is a uk-born art and media theorist critic and curator who holds a phd in philosophy from goldsmith's college and he is the author of three books with zero books towards the conceptual militancy can the left learn to meme and most recently the memeing of mark fisher uh mike welcome back to the zero books channel hi thank you yeah good to be here cheers yeah uh, let's start with how you begin your book you, you your book is a is about the frankfurt school you're using the frankfurt school to understand our our current digital moment and you begin your book by describing the frankfurt school as they responded to world war ii they saw the world wars as evidence that the enlightenment had gone awry and you describe the four main theorists of the Frankfurt School uh, in the beginning there. You say they have uh, different prescriptions, uh, different solutions to the problem of the Enlightenment and the way it had gone off the rails. For Adorno, <clears throat> the, the, the solution was artistic ab- abstraction as a way to uh, get working class people to break free of ideology and, and, and start to be able to think uh, through the totality of capitalist relations. Um, for Walter Benjamin, you say that the prescription was, and this is one that you're going to have to explain to me, the association of constellations of objects and occurrences with which to interpret capitalism. And I'm not as familiar with Walter Benjamin's work as I ought to be, so you're going to have to fill me in on what that exactly means. Um, then for Horkheimer, he, he advocated a return to philosophy, and Marcuse pushed for the freeing of eros via art as a way to break from capitalist relations. So let's start though with Benjamin. Can you unpack that line about objects and occurrences for me? Uh, basically, yeah, okay. Um, Benjamin, I mean, I, I'm not so familiar with Jewish mysticism, but but basically he kind of takes from, from Judeo-Christian mysticism um, that, that the world at some point was fragmented. So basically, he, I mean, he, he applies that to capitalism. So he sees the world as, as having been fragmented or the, the, there being even a hypothetical kind of state of perfection. And what we're dealing with throughout history is a kind of explosion of that perfection. And there's this famous um, piece where he's talking about the, the angel of history print by Paul Clay, which, which actually Benjamin owned which is like almost like a cartoon um angel figure with a huge head and these kind of wings and benjamin basically says that what he sees is an angel looking back on the accumulated debris of history and reality is is us kind of like receding into the future looking back on the scattered debris of the past that arises from conflicts mm-hmm. um and from basically from conflictual behaviour that, that, that is very present in, 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 in capitalist behaviour. So what Benjamin basically says is that we could better understand history, and particularly capitalism, by accumulating the debris or by making constellations from the debris that has accumulated throughout history. So his kind of aim in the 1930s or from the late 20s when he left Germany for, for um, Paris was to go on excursions a bit like the Flaneurs did in the 1800s uh, for very different motives, actually. But he wanted to basically emulate the Flaneurs as they walked through Paris, kind of, you know, at a slow pace, um, taking in the scenery. And his point was that in doing so, going through the the arcades that were built in the, in the 1800s, he could somehow build constellations of the architecture which is built in a in a kind of um, very productive moment of capitalism, alongside the products being sold in these basically covered shopping arcades, um, and that he could form constellations between the products and the architecture, and thereby somehow reconstruct uh, from the debris of history the recent past of capitalism, which had led to the point he had got to in the 1930s when he was basically self-exiled from Nazi Germany, and he would have seen, like Adorno did, uh, Nazi Germany as a, as a product uh, of, of capitalism. Right. Well, you know, when you describe that to me, it, it reminds me of what would come later on uh, from the Situationists and their concept of the derive, uh, where they would 
try to uh, follow the architecture of the city of Paris and find living situations. Um, do you think that they were influenced by... I think by there's a, a similar thing, and I believe they were influenced by Benjamin. Um, I think there's a similar process for sure, yeah, uh, of basically walking aimlessly and piecing together from the city maybe new rea realities or reinterpreting the existing reality. Um, so, yeah, I think this is a very similar process. And, and I mean, there's another element to it because Benjamin was the son of an industrialist. In fact, most of the Frankfurt School were sons of, of bourgeois industrialists. And I think Benjamin was very much dealing with, with being bourgeois and with how to be bourgeois and or how to square being bourgeois with his dislike of capitalism and, and, and effectively his his communism and his kind of uh, nascent or, or growing Marxism. And he, um, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is that the, the flaneurs were mostly children of bourgeois uh, industrialists or bourgeois people who dealt with their social position by by walking aimlessly, a bit like mole rats, I guess, or slackers more recently. Um, and I go through this in the book, actually, because I think this is a, this is a point that comes up a little bit. Uh, maybe when you've been talking to other zero writers, but just what we do with the what we do with the bourgeois, because there's a tendency to dislike them. But you know, this is you know, it, 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 this is kind of counterproductive. Is a point I've come to in recent years because I used to be kind of eminently anti-bourgeois people. Um, but I think um, they occupy a position in history, or they are a product, a product of history and material relations. So when you look at people saying the the Frankfurt School are too bourgeois, I get to this in the book, and they are bourgeois. But they're basically dealing with being bourgeois as leftists and doing really all they can do in that position. So, you know, I, I don't expect many bourgeois people from any epoch to take a kind of punk rock attitude or not, you know, unless they're feigning it. I think it's kind of logical that they would somehow maintain some level of stasis or position themselves in, in a way that's not entirely aggressive um, or it's not going to destabilize the system because then they're destabilizing themselves. They're, they're their own kind of fairly safe position. So what you see Benjamin doing, I think, is emulating the flaneurs with with the aim of exploring that position of of, of of being bourgeois and not upsetting the apple cart, so to speak. But I think at least he's confronting it. Well, the the uh, bourgeois revolution and the socialist revolution kind of arose at the same moment, you know, in the, in the 19th century. Um, and I always try to, I don't know if this is justified, but I sort of think of the bourgeois class um, as something slightly different than the capitalist class. Although often, you know, often enough they're the same exact people, but bourgeois ideology or the bourgeois project was the project of Republicanism against the aristocracy. It was a project of liberty and freedom and all of that, you know, uh, Free expression, the Enlightenment, as you know, which we mentioned at the start. Um, uh, you know, modern modernity is, is probably even a better way to, to put it. Um, so I'm with you that you don't want to just throw out bourgeois concepts or indict someone for being bourgeois or bourgeois thinker. Um, like you know, Hegel was bourgeois uh, and a huge influence on Marx. Um, so. Uh, but you do want to, I think, question some of the projects like the Situationists came up with as to how uh, it, how these things would translate into an actual movement or party or pol political action from the working class uh, rather than uh, an artistic project or, or a philosophical project uh, for uh, the bourgeois class to better understand a predicament that really on their own, they're never going to overcome. Um, was that the kind of uh, question that Benjamin was wrestling with? Um, I don't know entirely for Benjamin, except that I, I, from looking at his letters with, with Adorno, because there's, I mean, there's a book of collected letters. I'm sure you can find it somewhere online. Um, the correspondence of Walter Benjamin, I'm just looking at it on my, on my bookshelf. Mm. Um, you can ascertain Adorno, Benjamin, Horkheimer, and various others trying to grapple with their with their privilege, and this comes out actually 
in a dawn on Horkheimer telling Benjamin that his arcades project, which is basically his notes taken whilst walking the arcades of Paris as a flaneur, um, telling him that it was it was not sufficiently materialist or, or Marxist, effectively. And I think you know they all have this at that point when they're writing uh, in the 1930s, when they're writing their correspondence in, in, the, in the late 30s, I think it is. Um, you can see they're really kind of approaching the lack of materialism in all their projects. That's how I kind of read it. And that's why I say in the book that you really sense Adorno when he's really um, laying into Benjamin. Actually, Adorno and Horkheimer were Benjamin's paymaster. They were basically feeding uh, small amounts of money to Benjamin to to keep him going because his family had had lost their income as they stayed on in Germany as as German-Jewish industrialists. Um, so Benjamin was without money, but was taking a small stipend from Horkheimer and Adorno. So they kind of had a right to say, you know, your book needs to be more like this. But if you look at what they're saying, which is basically that, um, you know, in your accumulation of objects and 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 uh, poems and things, because he was reading poets like Baudelaire and making notes, um, you know, you you're not you're not looking sufficiently at the material history um, and Benjamin's actually you know his not so much his reply but what kind of transpires if you actually read the arcades was that he was looking at material history but through the objects left over architecturally and kind of artistic objects and and uh i guess kind of luxury objects he would have found in the arcades there so i don't actually think that i don't think they're entirely fair on him but i think what it is as i say is them all grappling with the fact that they're bourgeois and they're not maybe capable of understanding uh, what it is to be a worker. Um, I'm not sure if actually I've diverged from your question quite a bit there. Um, That's pretty good. Uh, so let me ask you, like, when you consider Adorno or Horkheimer's prescription for breaking free of the problem of the Enlightenment, it's not so much that they are saying, okay, this is how we start a revolution. It's not that they... They don't think that's in the offing, but th- this is like, how do we start to break uh, what I think Mark Fisher would call capitalist realism? They didn't call it that, but they, you know, the ideology of the Enlightenment, the ideology of uh, industrial society. Um, how do we break free from that? And what kinds of productions do we want to uh, advocate? And where do we find hope, basically, in a society uh, in the middle of the 20th century? How do, how do they differ like, what is the difference between Adorno's advocacy for our artistic abstraction from Benjamin's uh, uh, approach to, uh, towards you know, collecting these objects and arranging them in, in order to get uh, a better picture of the history of, of society? Neither, at least I'll point out the obvious, neither are particularly aimed at changing material conditions, Right. Um, okay, I mean, just one thing is that actually, and I, I, I'm I, not I, being I, critical of either. I just sort of want to like highlight their differences, if I can. Sure, you know? sure. I mean, I should I should state um, actually that a lot of the reason why I'm looking towards the end of the book into is it okay that the the Frankfurt School is is very bourgeois is because even I think if we're working class in in the industrialized Western world, we uh, still we, we occupy a position that's that's much like the bourgeois in the fact in the, in the sense that many of us are kind of flanners um, in the sense that we we mess around on the internet we kind of casually uh, look at things we're not really very active um, we're, we're we're privileged basically we occupy a very privileged position historically. Um, of course, there are people who are really hard up uh, in America, the UK, etc. But I mean, the people we're talking with a lot of the time are very privileged, you know, in terms of uh, the global situation and and speaking historically. Um, so, kind of squaring where we are, I think, you know, there's a good comparison between the privilege of, of the Frankfurt School and and our privilege in being able to just kind of like casually observe stuff all the time albeit now on the internet rather than in, in arcades, but it could be also in shopping arcades. Um, 
so you know there's that kind of comparison to think you know to, to, to kind of ask you know well, well what do we do and then look back at what what they proposed um and then somehow okay. i link fisher into that but but just to, I, I, to, I, I, I want to interject a light objection to what you just said not because i think it's entirely wrong but just to clarify maybe um if you consider, like recently, I, I I made a video about Christopher Lash and the nuclear family, and the way in which the nuclear family arose in bourgeois as the bourgeois family, um, and how it, uh, but but really at this point in our history, most families are nuclear families. There, I mean, at least in the United States, there, there's not too many people who live in an extended family on a farm that kind of thing. But it, so if you look at the, like the immigrants of the early 20th century who were not caught up in the nuclear family and the ideology uh, that came with it, they were living on a family farm and they, and, and in some sense they were less privileged because they were just like children, for instance, had to work. Uh, right. And the children in a nuclear family were treated maybe a little bit more like pets or objects. Um, uh, however, the flip side of that is that if you are a worker living uh, like a bourgeois subject and you lose your job, you're not going to be able to return to the land. You're not self-sufficient at all. You're actually more reliant on the so-called privilege of consumption um, than you would have been a hundred years ago or more. Right? So it's like, it, yeah, it's true that we're privileged and we certainly have access to images like never before. Even people who are absolutely destitute have access to all sorts of images. They can go online, most of them. Uh, but there still is huge pockets of po absolute misery and poverty in the West. I was just in L.A. <clears throat> and uh, the woman I visited there works on Skid Row as a social worker. And she like gave me a tour of Skid Row, pointing out to people that she'd been dealing with. She's a mental health responder. And, you know, to 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 think of the West as privileged after seeing that, it, it's not exactly right, but it is true that even those people on Skid Row are consumers, relying on a, that kind of yeah. economy. I mean, I, I'd be often the first to say I'm, I would say working class, but I think this is like a distinction that one would draw much more in the UK still, although I'm in Finland, but I'm, I'm from Britain. Yeah. I don't know if in America people say they're working class so much, but, you know, there's this clear class system in the UK because we have the monarchy still mm -hmm. um, and a large aristocracy. Um, but I think we have to be able to look at our, our underprivileged and privileged equally because, you know, I, I'm thinking about things like running water and other conveniences plus the internet uh, the level of stimulus we have, which probably goes far in excess of what Benjamin had, actually. Mm -hmm. And at that point in, in the 30s, he, he, as I say, didn't have a very steady income and he was waiting on money from Adorno and Horkheimer at points. And of course, they were all exiles. Um, and, and in Benjamin's case, you know, an exile who was worried about the risk of Germany, um, the Germans coming for him in France, which they, they kind of did. I mean, he had to run from them. Um, and then obviously committed suicide as he was escaping because he, he thought he wouldn't be able to escape. Um, so, I mean, they were privileged, but how privileged were they? So I think we all have, I mean, we all, obviously some people are just purely underprivileged, but, you know, many of us are underprivileged on, on some level and, and privileged on others. And I think that's something that's useful to think of because we're so often in these kind of debates about who is more privileged or less privileged, uh, on various counts relating to identity politics. Um, so I'm, I'm happy to say, you know, I'm underprivileged. I still got no income. Oh, I say no income. I'm a freelancer. I have low income at the moment, um, many times in my life. Uh, but I also, I mean, come on, I have a fairly stable, uh, existence, uh, with a roof over my head and food and whatnot and, and constant stimulus, as I say. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think, you know, just the way I think of the way we relate to, the world as leftists and the crowd we're talking with, because I think we're mostly talking with other leftists who are heavily involved online. Um, and I think I can relate that experience a bit to what Benjamin's doing with going around looking at stuff 
and trying to draw constellations. And actually, I don't, I'm not sure enough of, enough of us do, but I think that might be a good response to the way we're dealing with the internet or the way we're existing through and with the internet to take like, you know, the different things we see and to try and draw a constellation of them to try and put these objects together and say, how do we end up with this, 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 and this? And try and trace that back and work out how capitalism landed us here. Um, because it's very much a product of, of capitalism, what we're dealing with. Our task is a lot bigger than uh, Benjamin's, right? I mean, the uh, when he was walking through the arcades, um, there were many luxury goods, but it wasn't an infinite supply of images and artifacts and you know, uh, whereas online now it, it's very difficult to, uh, just take it, take everything in. Um, there's, there is no center to it. And, um, so I think that fragmentation is even more profound today than it, than it was in his time. I mean, I don't think that's a, I think it's probably a pretty obvious thing to say, but, but is your book, um, trying to give the online left some new tools or some old tools repurposed? in order to navigate this political moment, do you think? Uh, for sure, that is one of the main aims, yeah. Um, I'm just thinking there, yeah, because going back to that, uh, us having way more things to look at. So basically, Benjamin wrote this essay called The Work of Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that essay, he talks about he talks about this thing called the aura, um, which basically is kind of a kind of glow, but it's not actually there, but a kind of a presence around an artwork which relates to it being special and unique. Okay, so the Mona Lisa has this kind of aura because it's the original Mona Lisa, for example. So people go and seek it out and, and, and you feel, you know, that there's something particular about that particular painting. Um, and, and basically Benjamin says that we lose that aura when we mass produce an artwork. So the many, many prints of the Mona Lisa on biscuit tins, T-shirts and many online images of the Mona Lisa and memes don't have that same aura. And he says that's kind of good and bad. Um, but actually, most of the essay isn't really about that. What he says is that in the kind of modern period, the period of the mass reproduction of images, people just see like much, much more stuff all the time. And that made people in the 1930s seek out uh, even more stuff. So like if you imagine in the 1800s, you may have had like an image uh, of Mary or Jesus on your wall and you may have had a Bible with a couple of images and you may be lucky enough to have another couple of photos in the late 1800s. And I don't know what else, but most people would have a handful of images in their house. Um, but, you know, they end up with many, many more by the 1930s, magazine images, depending who they are. But you know, there is many, but many people have many more images and they have what's happening in film, etc. Um, so Benjamin says that people seeing all this stuff, they want ever more stuff. And the reaction by the elite was to divert them uh, by creating or accentuating stereotypes um, of some racial groups and by encouraging an appetite for warfare. So he says the Nazi party basically took this desire for more stuff and more imagery and stimulus, and they made Nazi parades and posters, etc., radio, film. Um, and they also told people that, you know, your desire for more stuff, hey, the problem is not that we're not giving you more stuff. The problem is uh, that, for example, the Jews are taking it. Um, so basically... You know, Benjamin kind of spells out that situation. And if you think about what's happening today, if it is a situation that in the 30s, he also says that people can accidentally end up on a newsreel. For, you know, so the fact that you could accidentally end up on a newsreel makes you feel that you too could be famous or something like that. Um, you think if that was a situation back then, then we've got that situation, but greatly, greatly amplified today where, you know, we all think we could be famous and we're seeing so much stuff. It kind of whets our appetite for power. And I think that's how Brexit happened. And that's how Trump got elected and why he was talking about building this wall, because it's like a thing we can do together. You know, we can take action together. Um, So we have a very similar situation now, except that these things that offer us riches actually can also give us riches. Um, and fame 
mm-hmm. you know. So, so there is this kind of this two things happening. There is like a situation much like in the 1930s where the media makes us want more stuff. The ruling class doesn't want us to have that stuff. The right wing populists step in and divert our attention, offering us stuff, offering us decisions like Brexit, um, and actually not really giving us things like Brexit's turned out to be a disaster. But at the same time, you have platforms that can offer you wealth. You have people making money out of uh, broadcasting, not just as leftists. Actually, most of them aren't thinking about politics. Um, So in some ways, we need to maybe take what's good and get rid of what's bad. Uh, So I talk about that. And then I talk a lot lot about, well, a bit about in one chapter, um, QAnon and the parallels between QAnon and the 1930s and 40s, because the, the Nazis didn't just say, like, you know, Jews are bad. There were all these kind of bizarre conspiracies about witchcraft and eating children and mm. drinking blood, you know, the mm. same as there are today in regard to racial groups and, and the, the, the democratic elite um, coming out of QAnon. So um, there's that aspect as well. But I think the, the thing there is that, well, Basically, Adorno and Horkheimer kind of talk about this situation in Dialectic of Enlightenment, which they wrote in the 1940s, saying that um, basically people under pressure, they start to project fear, uh, mostly fear of mortality or the, their own kind of uh, weakness in the face of nature. They project that fear out onto other people. So the kind of the fear of becoming dead, of basically... They talk about dirt, you know, he's projected onto um, onto the other. And you see that happening a lot today. So, the, But the thing is that this is happening partly because people in crises, they need a narrative to help them get out of those crises. And that narrative was failing or there weren't sufficient narratives in the 1930s. Today, there for sure aren't sufficient narratives. And that's how QAnon grows up. And my question is, why can't the left make an equal narrative? Or why is not the narrative most obvious to the left good enough? And then the narrative most obvious to the left is like, let's make the fairest world ever. You know, let's make a world where everyone can prosper and realize their potential. That should be a great narrative. And and even the, hey, America could lead the way in this, or Britain could lead the way in this. You know, you think that was an impressive narrative, but it, it, it's not gaining ground, possibly because we're not allowed to to push that narrative. The the, the, the mass media and, and internet media prevents us, um, and possibly just because these other narratives that seem ludicrous. The reason they're able to prosper, I think, or grow up in people's heads, is because I think they just come literally from the the mechanism, the underlying mechanisms of the human brain. Uh, so it's not so much why is that one. Why, you know, why is that perverse narrative gaining ground and not the leftist one? It's gaining ground because it's just what it what does emerge. It's what does emerge out of human fear. Well, don't you think it's also the case that <clears throat> because people are stymied, uh, are in a precarious jobs, um, are not able to realize their full potential, even when they're bourgeois, um, that the narrative from the left about uh, emancipation and self-actualization and uh, restructuring of society. All of that seems rather empty as compared to the the narrative from the right, which is not offering um, a new world, or but rather just explaining the really lived problems that people face in this world, and not and explaining them. You know, incorrectly, obviously, giving a, a a false picture of the world, but nonetheless, you know, delivering uh, an explanation where true transformation isn't necessary. Like, um, like if you look at the the way people talk about COVID on the right, on the far right, you know, they talk about it as something that has arisen from a conspiracy of elites. Um, and, you know, the crazy thing is like the lab leak hypothesis is looking like it's possibly true. Like there was the, like it was a man-made virus. Um, but uh, by being able to point to a group, whether it's the Jews, whether it's uh, the Clintons, <laughs> you know, whoever it might be, whether it's Fauci and his friends, um, the Chinese, 
it it makes it so that you have an enemy, uh, an external enemy to fight, and but you don't have a project for uh, change or even uh, a long-term responsibility for creating and recreating the world. You just have to, you know, it's like spring cleaning. You just have to get rid of the garbage, right? And that's an easier narrative. It's an easier thing for people to comprehend, and it's an easier task. Um, so I think that might be what it is more than just some sort of innate uh, predilection due to human biology. I think it's like, you know, the, the circumstances are such that, uh, you know, without a good organization on the left, without a, a, something going on where people can see something concrete happening and want to join, you know, these right-wing narratives are going to be pretty popular, especially amongst those who uh, don't feel connected to the state, uh, who aren't, you know, like, I, I I don't know, I'll stop there, but I'll let you respond. Yeah, I, mean, I, I agree, yeah. I mean, um, I think simplicity is a big factor yeah and, and that actually ties into the fact that i don't think many people what you say ties into the fact that not many people probably really do believe the QAnon narrative um but it remains that some of the things emerging are similar to things that have emerged have emerged in the past so for some people it must be necessary um well one thing i want to sure ask why. you about i'm, I'm going to go i'm going to move on to the part the, the, of this book that we haven't talked about enough, but we should be talking about because it's in the title. Um, it's called your book is called the memeing of Mark Fisher. And you argue that uh, the left online content production might help us break from capitalist realism as Mark Fisher described it. Um, I, I read that and I think, well, the term content production it, it gives a game away right from the start that we're just going to be, dealing with some sort of commodity that fits within the system as it is, if we're just producing content. But I, I, but on the other hand, you have to use the real words that people really use that to point to the real things that are out there on the internet. And it is at this point, unfortunately what we're doing right now, even it's content. Um, do you hold out hope for kind of the do it yourself online left's content production? Um, uh, playing a part uh, in this kind of Benjaminian project, um, and, why, and how does Mark Fisher and how does Mark Fisher fit in? Why is he in your title? So do the first question and then my second okay. question. <laughs> um, okay. Well, Fisher. Well, he's just he's huge lately, um, or at least his image is. This is kind of another interesting aspect. But anyway, when Fisher is just like a, Karl a, Marx, a very Karl big Marx figure, same thing. Go ahead. It's a similar thing, actually, with a few philosophers. Um, but yeah, as they're both left, that makes sense to 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 reference those two. I mean, Fisher is a phenomenon that goes far beyond his thinking. Um, actually, he's become a. I don't think I actually say this anywhere in the book, but I, I do allude to this. But he's become a kind of commodity fetish. Um, and actually, I think Marx is similar. That, that he means something to people in that he represents something that they become something more in consuming him but it doesn't mean reading him actually it just means kind of like you know looking at images of him or somehow associating yourself with fisher and this is this is of course kind of disturbing because it's not what fisher probably really wanted it's probably not what marx wanted either about himself it's not what che Guevara wanted for sure um but you know this is how the the this is how capitalism cops the left and it's actually what fisher spoke about a lot he said that the capitalism cops leftist and, and countercultural figures. And then he's been co-opted and he's been co-opted in a way it's by capitalism, but actually it's not even. It's by it's by capitalism, but indirectly it's by the algorithm. So um, it's something actually I don't think he could have foreseen um, or maybe not in quite in this way, but you know, because the internet is, is uh, moving so fast, we can only kind of make quite short kind of stupid statements to get attention. And so you have this situation where people are making Mark Fisher memes and they're great maybe at spreading the word about Mark Fisher. And some people do say like, I, I found Mark Fisher through memes. So I read Capitalist Realism. So that's all great. But there's another aspect in which his thoughts getting lost in the chatter. Um, and so I relate that to the Frankfurt School because they also talked about co-optation a lot. 
and Fisher is indebted to them, but he only mentions them twice in Capitalist Realism and not to any real effect. But he does mention them in his Acid Communism book, the introduction of which exists out there. Um, so I just want to, I, I kind of link his thought, particularly Capitalist Realism, to, to the Frankfurt School there. And I really tie it in at the end of the book to what he's pointing to um, in Capitalist Realism, actually. It's very much there in the end of the book and in, and in Acid Communism, his unfinished book. But he points to um, the need to make a new counterculture and he points to kind of um, maybe psychedelic, but also uh, works coming from mental illness as being ways to counter capitalism. Or rather, he, I think he sees that mental illness comes from, from from capitalism, partly. But we have to seize on that mental illness and then turn it against capitalism. Um, so that's where I find him very important. And I see parallels with the Frankfurt School. I, I actually don't know the Frankfurt School speaking about mental illness, except Adorno is a known melancholic, and today we would just say depressive, and Benjamin committed suicide. You know, so you, you, it kind of pervades their work, This uh, certainly melancholy. But, you know, I also see in, in their work a kind of uh, sense that things uh, are not well with the world. There's perhaps no solution and a sense of um, despair at that. But then then saying that we need to kind of seize on this despair and make it useful through artistic abstraction. So I think there's a strong parallel there between what Fisher's saying and, and, and what they're saying. And I think Fisher is and can be still a very powerful figure, but I think we need to take what he left us and, and move on with it, really, which is what we really need to do with every existing theorist work, you know, uh, either you know alive or dead. And... I think there's a little bit of a block now to moving on with Fisher's work because uh, mm-hmm. there's people want to claim him and, and then they want to and they want to say no, you're interpreting him wrong. And I think that's well, kind of I think really, that's part of I think that is part of moving on. Yep, yeah, squabbles about how to interpret any theorist is going to have to be part of the of for sure. The yeah, I don't want to say that my interpretation is the only right one, but I'm not really saying anyone else is I'm the sure, wrong one. Anyway, I'm sure it is. I'm sure it is, Mike. Uh, you know, I'm not <laughs> but let me, um, you, know, you said something in just a moment ago that I want to come back to, which is that the need, there was a need that Fisher was pushing for this idea that we needed to develop a new counterculture to struggle against capitalism. Now I just finished, uh, working on a book, um, uh, promoting a book and making a short film about a book that's coming out from zero books soon. It's called the freaks in the machine. It's by an author named Are You Serious? That's his pen name. Real name is Ken Goffman. He was the editor of Mondo 2000 magazine, which in the 90s in America was a cyberpunk counterculture magazine that did pretty well, like at a subscription rate of around 100,000 people. Um, uh, you know, it t- picked up William Gibson's idea of cyberpunk and said, hey, let's talk about what's coming, the, the future uh, that technology is going to give us and the, the freedom and the the break from conformity that we can find through technology. The psychedelic era uh, promises computers and technology are going to deliver it, um, and we can all be cyberpunks and do it ourselves. And, and uh, in 2000, Are You Serious ran for president as a joke. And, and during his, uh, he gave a meeting in a, at a bookstore as part of his campaign, and um, he said, you know what's happened is that already the counterculture has won. We have beaten the mainstream culture. There is no more mainstream culture. With the internet, we can't even find consensus reality, let alone some sort of meta narrative that everyone's going to agree to. So, but he said, and the the consequence of that is that there's no uh, there's lots of rebellion. And lots of different arenas, but there's no political rebellion left. We can't organize politically anymore because the counterculture won. What do you make of that? I think it's, uh, yeah, I like that. Um, I just, 
I think then you have to say counterculture is very, very broad, but maybe that was what's intended. It, it, by, by winning, it also dissolved itself. There is no counterculture. Yeah, yeah. But I, I think the thing is that the, the, one of the, 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 the things that's happening that's most interesting is that anybody can become a star on Twitch or Instagram, but they're often not doing what we would have wanted them to do if anyone ever told us that, hey, there's going to be a time in which anyone can be a star. Because then we'd say, well, you know, well, I, I know I would have thought, because people were kind of alluding to this in the 90s when the internet kind of first came about, I would have thought that increased democracy and the ability for anyone to become a star would have meant that all the people becoming stars would have been pushing increased democracy. You know, they would have been pushing a left agenda. Um, but it's not at all the case. People are doing whatever they want. You know, they're, 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 they're pursuing things that are not in any sense political. But the sense, you know, the way in which they're becoming famous through making selfies or whatever, uh, or through cat videos, which goes back a bit more to my next, my last book, The Kind of Left Learn to Meme, where I talk about this. Um, the, the fact that they're becoming famous, it, it, it kind of is political, you know. Um, and, you know, who are we to say uh, who should be and shouldn't be becoming famous once anyone can? But I think the thing is we're a little bit stuck along the way. And I, actually, I would that's where I would maybe disagree, that what I'm thinking lately is that you know, there is this medium that lets anyone become famous. What it should dissolve into is everyone having their own Twitch, but no one watching each other, or us all having audiences of one or two. Um, and when we're not there, we're somewhere else, and you get um, very interesting left commentators that have huge audiences, but they seem to be more about themselves, or they, they buy $3 million houses. But I, I don't want to get into that being wrong as such, but we're stuck there because Which we're not Which left YouTuber in is buying a $3 million house? Because I, I want to emulate his, them. I forget, I, now I forget his name. He's more on Twitch. Um, it's kind of bad that I forget oh, his name Destiny as well. Destiny or someone like that? Is it no, it's not Destiny. It's uh, became very big very quickly. And because Destiny, of course, is kind of a, does he say he's liberal or something? Yeah. Uh, but it's a guy that came up who's like more left. So he was he won he wore a costume as well when AOC wore her costume. Who was that? You see sometimes photos of them next to each other. He wore one that also says something about the rich. Was it Vosh? No, it wasn't. Be, I don't think Vosh is good. I hope he's not um, buying a three million dollar house. No, he's not, but he could be him next. Um but uh, no, it's not because people will know the name and they'll be saying it for people who are watching when this is put out. But anyway. Um, maybe it could be you and me, Mike. We'll, it could we'll be, maybe there. it could we'll be one day, yeah. But you <laughs> see, where we might buy $3 million houses is, I hope I wouldn't, but in a way, you know, it would be because the historical moment isn't there yet. We're stuck, we're stuck because we're literally stuck between, you know, no one gets famous and everyone gets famous and therefore no one is famous because everyone's famous. We're stuck somewhere in the middle where, where there are leftist commentators who are getting famous and, you know, maybe they kind of dig their fame and they try and protect their fame. But, you know, that's, I don't think that's an indictment of them particularly. I think it's just, we're still in capitalism, you know, so. Um, um, but, let me ask you a question that's, uh, that I, I thought we'd get to earlier, but it's going to be going to jump out of this question about um, the left content online today and go back into the past. Towards the end of your book, you examine some letters between Adorno and Marcuse, uh, correspondence and uh, really an argument about the character of the new left in Germany. Um, Marcuse was defending the students and the new left movement, uh, the student movement, and Adorno was basically saying they're proto-fascists. They're they're regressive. He sounded like Dave Rubin, maybe. You know, these leftists are actually regressives. He would say, um, they're they're sliding into barbarism. Uh, and but but Adorno seemed to be make, to me when I read those that exchange. Adorno seemed to be making some good arguments, much better than Dave Rubin would ever make. Um, where did you fall? Uh, in that dialogue between Marcuse and Adorno. Okay, um, so it was uh, 1969, and Adorno students basically rose up for a number of reasons um, and took over the university. And Adorno, at some point, called the cops on his own students, um, and basically was just very anti uh, their movement, which was kind of a movement that, that grew out of movements moving across Europe at that time. And there was also a movement had, in America. They had, 
they had stormed into his his classroom and were shutting down his attempt to lecture and and I don't know if this is at the same they, they, moment they, where they bared their breasts or not, but they, they did that and and they actually sat in occupation and they they yeah there was the what's it called again like the breast action yeah. basically the German the translation of the German is the breast action which I think is actually what they called it the people who did it but a number of his students yeah stormed his class and um, some of the female students bared their breasts uh, and they got up on the podium with him uh, yeah. when they did that. And I think this was embarrassing for Adorno. Um, uh, but, you know, generally the whole thing was a big problem. I mean, obviously, because they were trying to disrupt his teaching. But Adorno's position was that we, we're not ready for a revolution, that the revolutions that had come before uh, had failed. And he meant the uh, well, Nazism, which is not a revolution in the leftist sense, but, you know, he said that that kind of revolutionary spirit got diverted into that, and then what happened in Russia? Because he was very aware, very aware at that point of what happened um, in Stalinist Russia, and basically he said that our problem is that we try to control too much. To put it very simply, for the moment, and for that reason, he felt that abstract art in which you can't discern what's happening in a given painting or piece of music. Is a good counter because you can't take control because you can't you know you, you can't uh get any traction you can't get any measurement of what you're seeing or listening to uh so he was deeply against a movement which would try and assert control which would say we need this rather than this so for him any kind of uprising was wrong at that point he, he basically thought we had to rethink how we think before we move on so he was never going to support that kind of movement in fact he said that um you know, there were positive elements, but he identified a, a modicum of madness, which would turn into a future totalitarianism in, in the student movement. Whereas Marcuse, who had also been exiled from Nazi Germany during World War II and ended up in America with Adorno before Adorno went back to Germany, Marcuse stayed in America and was very involved in the American student movement and saw potential to admix a kind of abstract or psychedelic art. Um, I don't think he said psychedelic, but okay, an abstract art with the counterculture uh, in America in the 60s. So basically what Marcuse said, knowing that Adorno had basically turned on his students, is that, look, I'll come back in the summer and I'd like to lecture your students. I'd like to talk to them and try and kind of like smooth over things. And Adorno had a problem with this. Um, and yeah, basically where I stand in that, it's tricky because right now, if you look at the kind of uprisings we're having, they do look like they would tip over into um, something really awful if they kind of came to power. I don't mean Black Lives Matter by that. I, I mean more um, the right-wing populist movements. Um, I think there's room to well, make well, you know what? I'm, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say not Black Lives Matter, particularly th that institution because that's that's actually an institution that's a non-profit i think there's black lives matter there's anyway there's lots of long-standing movement but the reaction to the george floyd murder spurred a, a lot of radical unrest and attempts to organize and what i would say is that really good-hearted people who were wanting radical change ended up creating total little mini totalitarian organizations where they tortured each other um and uh you know rather than luckily they're never going to take power that way but you know it burned through the these young people and you know yeah. back into being apolitical mostly now um and so and then there was a totalitarian and kind of a, a barbaric quality to the organizing and the and the relations that were uh leading protests um that summer um and it, it and it was not any particular person's fault and it wasn't because of the the their heart was in the wrong place or that they had ill intention it was just that they didn't have any tools they just didn't have what and the tools they had they you know mostly misread and they were bad this to boot <laughs> you know like consciousness raising seminars and uh call out and 
and struggle session. Yeah, I mean, of... I find this, yeah, I think it's very difficult. I think that you know, we could use the internet to to educate, to discuss, and we could, through that, persuade people to meet up in groups and discuss and discuss with fellow workers, discuss with people in bars. You know, we, we can get people out post-COVID and talking with each other and making communities and we can use the online realm to to, to make that happen. Um, but I think here, I mean, I think one of the most interesting things about Fisher's acid communism is he talks at one point about a holiday scenario in the 60s and the fact that that workers could afford holidays and it was quite an idyllic holiday i mean it wasn't like in the bahamas on a beach or anything it's i think it, if i remember it was like was it a small cottage boat type thing barge boat or something mm. but just discussing a very simple um workers holiday but the fact that people could have workers holidays back then there were provisions for people to have like these breaks but it was a very kind of familial situation even kind of a slightly conservative one like small c conservatism it wasn't like what you think when you think of acid communism are you people taking acid and that kind of inspired me a bit because i think that we can't make a revolution happen by purely by having kind of large-scale festivals and people taking acid etc um or other drugs um, I mean, that's something for some people, but, you know, we're going to have to get out and talk to pensioners. We're going to have to get out and talk to families, you know, and, you know, which I think dosed, that which it dose the pensioners water supply. Um, no, I'm kidding. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Listen, I want to, um, I, I want to wind this up here and so we can get to the parrot room and, and, and the, for the patrons, we're going to be talking about the reaction to your book online. And we can maybe pick up uh, again this idea of how the left that has been kind of relegated to the online world might be able to use uh, Frankfurt School ideas or just uh, this uh, approach of creating a constellation of objects um, to rethink the left's own project. But um, I like to say it in as juicy way as possible. Uh, there's been an attempt to cancel the memeing of Mark Fisher and not the actual memes about him, but your book. And uh, in the parrot room, I want to talk to you and for the patrons, just why you think that that happened. Um, and uh, maybe we can't know for sure because we can't get into people's minds, but uh, we can speculate. So we'll do that in the parrot room. Sound good? Sure. Yeah. I look forward to that. Yeah. Okay. So I'm going to end it here. <laughs>